Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In the ninth chapter of Mark, we find the servant transfigured in verses 1 through 13. And then a demon-possessed boy restored in verses 14 through 32. And then Jesus continues his journey toward the cross of Calvary. And in broad terms, Jesus is going to address the issues of humility in verses 33 through 37. Harmony in verses 38 through 41. And he's even going to bring up the uncomfortable issue of hell in verses 42 through 50. We are on a journey. The journey has taken us from the northern part of Israel to the new headquarters of Jesus in Capernaum. As we follow Jesus, we find ourselves on a road and the road is leading somewhere and it's a road to greatness. But the road to greatness doesn't look like the well-worn highways that lead to worldly success. The road to greatness is found, we've discovered, in listening to the Son of God, in obeying the will of God. The road to greatness is marked by Humility and service to others. And in order to serve, we must overcome the dangerous desires of pride and position and prominence and then cultivate the discipline of humility. The road includes allegiance to Jesus, and it's also going to include a healthy understanding of the contrary road. The road marked hell. We soon learn that the way up is the way down. And if you want to be seen, you've got to get out of sight. And if you want to be great, you have to forget yourself. Jesus has bluntly warned the disciples what awaits him in Jerusalem. Betrayal, incarceration, execution, Resurrection. Yet the disciples continue to think of Christ's kingdom in earthly terms. And so the passage begins with an awkward tension. Look at verses 33. It says, then he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum, his earthly headquarters. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? They arrive in Capernaum. We don't know which home. We happen to know that Peter had a home there. 
And his mother-in-law, in the ancient world, it would, in, it would have been un, un, pretty normal for large families to live together. Peter and Andrew were brothers, and so they may have had homes. We're not told whose home it is or whether it's a generous benefactor, but whosever home it is, there seems to be more than just Jesus and the disciples there. When it says, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves along the road? The word disputed translates a fairly large Greek word, dialogizomai. Die means to divide. Logos or logizomai has to do with words. It can mean to argue. It can mean to bicker. It can be to carefully examine words. It can also mean to reason depending upon the context. Here, it says in verse 34, but they kept silent for the road for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. This is a good time to ask the text a question. Why are the disciples silent? I think, you know, in your heart, the answer, they're silent because they're ashamed Jesus has been speaking of his impending suffering, his impending death, and they're arguing among themselves about position and power. And few things can be more awkward than that. The Bible is right when it says that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9? William Barclay writes, it is strange how a thing takes its proper place and acquires its true character when it's set in the eyes of Jesus. So long as they thought that Jesus wasn't listening and that Jesus hadn't seen, the argument about who should be greatest seemed fair enough. But when the argument had to be stated in the presence of Jesus, it could be seen in all of its unworthiness. It's sort of like the journey that takes place for some of us from home to church. We're arguing, we're bickering, we're fighting about this and that and this and that. And then all of a sudden the parking lot comes in view and you realize that you've got to tone it down. And then you make your way into the community area and it's peaches and cream and roses are coming up all around you. We can't fight now. We're in church. Few things are more awkward than when Jesus comes into the room. The fighting, the bickering, the arguing ceases and then silence settles on the surface of their conscience. We're not even told how the dispute started and we're certainly not told what they said. But we are told the context, aren't we? Jesus is going to be betrayed. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to come back to life. And it could very well be that the conversation started off quite innocent. I don't know what all of this means. I don't understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. We know later on that, that Peter is going to say, come what may, come Hades or high water, I'm with Jesus. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that other cowards may bail when the going gets rough, but I'm, I'm there for Jesus. <laughs> It could very well be that Matthew said, uh, Peter, 
You may not understand this right now, but the qualities of leadership isn't just simply about the right heart. You've got to have the right head. You've got to think these things through. There's a reason why (laughs) James and John are called the sons of thunder. It's not simply the name of their radio program. It's because there's something really wrong with them when things go bad. Some of you are old enough to remember a guy named Muhammad Ali. Some of you might even be older than that, and you'll remember that before he was Muhammad Ali, he was Cassius Clay. And before his uh, conversion to the nation of Islam, he would say, Oh, there's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too fast. I'm too smart. I'm too purdy. I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I'm going to be licked. And it was true, man. The guy was fast and he was handsome. Our churches and our homes would be a lot happier if we would learn how to control ourselves instead of learning to control others. How are we to think about ambition? Is it a virtue or is it a vice? T.S. Eliot wrote, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. The Bible's teaching rubs against the grain of the world's concept of greatness. And the beginning of greatness is to be little and the increase is to be less. And then the perfection of greatness is to be nothing. Now, we have to remind ourselves about the context. Jesus has been speaking about a a cross, but talk about personal greatness and talk about personal recognition and talk about personal prestige and talk about authority and esteem has the net effect of ignoring the cross or denying the cross or delaying the cross. There's so much to talk about and there's so much that needs to be done. There's so much that has to be accomplished before Jesus dies. And look at the awesome tenderness in verse 35. It says, and he, that is Jesus, sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be Last of all and servant of all. In the world of ancient instruction, when a rabbi or a teacher wanted to communicate an important truth, the rabbi would sit down and he would invite the people to sit down with him in order to embrace the instruction. And I'm impressed. I'm impressed that Jesus doesn't scold them or offer some harsh rebuke. Jesus knows the truth about us, doesn't he? He knows that we are clay. He knows that we are men and women of clay. He knows our motives, even if we don't necessarily understand it. And isn't it true that we judge other people by what they do and we judge ourselves by what we mean? Well, you don't understand my motive and you don't understand what I mean. And we judge other people by what they do because the truth, we don't know their heart and we can't see into their circumstances. And so even if their words were (laughs) selfish 
and unwise. Jesus knows what needs to be done. By the way, this very line is repeated elsewhere in Matthew 23, 8, Luke 22, 24. Later on in Mark chapter 10, verse 43, he's going to feel the need to reiterate the statement. So what are the job openings in Christ's kingdom? How do you get a job with Jesus? How do you submit your resume? Your status is determined by your willingness to serve. And you'll note that Jesus doesn't condemn ambition or leadership. Look at the text itself. If anyone desires to be first, apparently the desire for promotion, the desire to be used isn't dismissed and it it isn't talked about in, in bad terms. But ambition has to be put in its proper place. Ambition can be a virtue. Or it can be a vice, a virtue if it's tempered with the cooling waters of service, a vice if you think that what you want to do is elevate yourself at the expense of others. True selflessness is rare. And when it occurs, it's usually remembered. The Greeks tell of a Spartan named Paterados. In Sparta, in the ancient world, it was a colony or a community, and each was an independent state with an independent governance. And in Sparta, they ruled with 300 elders or 300 men. And the way that you became that elder is that you were elected. And it happened to be that Paterados was on the list. But when the list was announced, Paterados wasn't chosen. And a good friend came to him, offering him condolences, saying, I am so sorry that you didn't win this election. If people understood how honest you are and how true you are and how just you are and how wise you are, they would have elected you. And Paterados said something remarkable. He said, I'm glad that there are 300 men in Sparta who are better than I am. Here's a man who becomes a legend because he's prepared to give others first place and he bears no ill will. Later on in the disciples' life, there's going to come a time where they're going to be willing to be second in order to make Jesus first. But it's not now. The disciples aren't arguing who's going to be the chief in character. They're not arguing about the qualities of spiritual maturity. They're arguing about recognition. They're arguing about position. They're arguing about power and fame and wealth and prestige and admiration. And so ambition requires instruction. The prophet Jeremiah says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Paul, picking up that same thing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Because we're so filled with pride, because we're so filled with arrogance and ambition, the Bible creates a mechanism where it says that the cure for pride is humility. And so Jesus invites them 
to reconsider the definition of greatness. And the moment that he does that, he invites you and me to do exactly the same. He prescribes this massive dose of humility to counteract selfish ambition. If anyone desires to be first, protos, he shall be last, eskatos, and servant of all, diakonos. It's the same word that is used to describe the person who wraps the towel around themselves. It's the same person who serves and expects to serve. Jesus insists that the best way to take first place is to voluntarily take last place. It's to live for each and every other person. The one expresses humility and the other ministry. And see, I need you to understand something. Last of all isn't the same as servant of all. Last of all speaks about a condition inside of your heart. It's self-examination. And, la- and servant of all speaks of something on the outside. It's service. One is an attitude on the inside. The other is an action on the outside. There are really two paradoxes that Jesus is talking about. The lowest is the highest and the chief is the servant. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that word paradox, it too is a Greek word. Para means alongside of. And dox usually has something to do with a statement of faith or truth or a statement in general. It means incredible or contrary to opinion or expectation. It came to mean a statement that on the surface seems to contradict. But when you lay it side by side, it creates an environment of complementary the way Up is the way down. Sinking is rising. Losing is gaining. Giving is obtaining. And so, the one invites you to look on the inside. The other invites you to look on the outside. So do you want to be great? It's a noble and a commendable ambition. Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? then you have to learn to be the servant of all. And the reason why is I need you to think about what kind of a kingdom it is that you want to be great in. This is the kingdom of Jesus. This is the kingdom of love. In the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of love, the distinctions of higher and lower disappear. They're in the process of being abolished. And service isn't a drudgery, it's a delight. The human heart is way more comfortable with the title master than it is with the title slave. But Jesus puts human ambition and worldly standards of success in an entirely different category and then models his ministry in such a topsy-turvy way that it's almost unlike anything that you've ever seen. Do you want to find your life? Lose it, it says in Matthew 10, 39. Do you want to lose your life? Find it. Do you want of being unknown and yet known, 2 Corinthians 6, 9. Dying yet possessing life, 2 Corinthians 6, 9. 
of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Being poor, but always being made rich, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Of having nothing, yet possessing all things, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Hearing words that can't be expressed, 2 Corinthians 12.4. Being strong when one is weak, 2 Corinthians 12.10. Of knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. Of seeing that which cannot be seen, 2 Corinthians 4. 18. What? You see something that's not there? You hear something that can't be seen? You find your life to lose it? You lose your life to gain it? You become unknown in order to be known? You die in order to possess life? How does that make sense? But Jesus will illustrate the amazing truth. Look at verses 36 and 37. Then he took a little child... Padon. It means a small child. And set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in, in, in his arms, he said to them, pause for just a moment. He takes the little child. Look at the beautiful expression. And when he had taken him in his arms. That expression is one single Greek word. Enagkal lesemenos. In a kalesimenos. It's in the aorist participle. It's a verb. It's only used in this gospel. It's only used by Mark. Do you know what it means? It means to pick something up and put it in the crook of your arm. It's what every mom and dad do with their little child. It's what grandpas do with their grandchildren. There's few things in life that's more fun for me than to pick up my grandchildren and put them in my arms and then kiss them on the face. I want you to see the picture for just a moment. Do you understand the illustration? Jesus is doing something kind. He takes the child, he wraps the child in his arms, and then but firmly but gently he begins to squeeze the child. Why? This is an act of affection. This is an act of kindness. This is an act of kindness, and I'm going to suggest to you, this is an act of kindness and affection to the least esteemed person in the room. Who is that child? Do you think she or he ever forgot that moment? Do you think there was never, ever a day that would go by after that, that that child didn't remember? Do you remember the day that Jesus picked me up and held me in his arms? And then he just began to slowly and gently and deliberately begin to squeeze me. We're not given the name of the child. And I think for good reason. Because this is a place where you can put your name. You can invite Jesus, even now, to use you as an illustration of the one who's been ignored, the one who's been overlooked, the person who is last, the person who is least, the person that the pastor doesn't necessarily come up and say, Hey, how are you doing? Nobody's thrown their arms around you. Nobody's hugged you. Nobody has acknowledged your presence. 
Children have this amazing capacity. They have this amazing capacity to read people. They may not be sophisticated in the nuances of the world. They may not understand about philosophy and psychology and theology. They don't understand about Calvinism and and, and Arminianism. They don't understand about the nuanced arguments. A child wonders whether you notice them and care about them and love them. That's what a child notices. And the person is vulnerable and the person is weak. And the text doesn't even tell us if Jesus speaks to the child. There's another question you should ask, not simply who is the child. It's what is this child? This child is the least and the last the smallest, and the most vulnerable. This child has small hands and small feet. The child can only travel a small distance alone and can only serve with the smallest of hands. And so the child becomes an example of humility. And But I want you to think about it. The moment that the child is used as an example of humility, the child also becomes the object of Mercy and tender mercy. Not all children are small, but when they are small, how can you resist them? How can you resist their little hands and their little toes and their little mouth and their little feet? Not all children are small, some are large. And they become rude and selfish and not so much fun. I grew up in a world where cartoons were quite a bit different. Uh, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner. Some of you are old enough to remember Baby Huey. Baby Huey was this gigantic duck. You talk about the 10,000 pound elephant in the room. Baby Huey was the baby that nobody really liked because he was 10 times bigger than every other baby. And it seemed crazy that a baby should have a little baby bib and a little baby pacifier and little baby diapers when you're seven feet tall. It's just awkward. And so Jesus picks up the child. And I want you to understand something. He's inviting them to think small. And to think vulnerable, to remind yourself of how little you know, to remind yourself that sometimes, as shocking as it may seem, particularly at the age that you happen to find yourself, that you would need adult supervision. Never feel so strong that you don't require someone else's strength. Never be so arrogant that you cease to be loved. In the late 60s, Dr. Kent Keith published a list of paradoxical commands for Christians. He wrote, people are illogical and unreasonable and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you'll win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten to be tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. 
The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. Go, Tim Tebow. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you. If you do help them, help them anyway. People really need help. Give the world the best you have. And you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best that you have anyway. And then get Aflac's dental plan. Because you're going to need it. Jesus invites us to ask the question, what does it mean to be great? But he does something way more important. He invites you to be great. That's what he's inviting you to do. How do you become great? Go down in order to go up. Become less in order to have more. The one who gives loving attention to Christ's little ones, the one who shows kindness, the one who shows favor, the one who takes their life and sacrifices it for the most vulnerable and the most dependent becomes something important. No wonder Jesus says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whenever you see one word mentioned four times in a single verse, you should draw immediate attention to it. Receives, 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 receives. And I'm going to ask you a question, and it's not a deep philosophical question. It is not one that requires a great deal of intellectual, philosophical insight. What is the opposite of receives? What's the opposite of receives? Reject. To not receive. To not take. So when you come to that place where you say, I reject God and I reject Jesus and I reject service and I reject humility. You're doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus is asking you to do. I want you to think for a moment. I want you to allow the text to speak to you. What is Jesus trying to say? An act of kindness demonstrated in his name was the same as if the kindness was demonstrated to himself. Even more, it wasn't just simply a kindness that you extend to Jesus. It's it's a kindness that you extend to God. The kindness is extended to God the Father. Position and rank and authority in the kingdom of Jesus are not based on pride, but a willingness to serve. Uh, And more than that, it's a willingness to accept others in the circumstance that they find themselves in. 
It isn't simply service, but it is service to vulnerable, to weak, to empty, to hurting. A Salvation Army officer once said, Gentlemen, remember that each time you place a hand on a child's head, you touch a mother's heart. When you're kind to my children, you're kind to me. And when you're rude to my children, you're rude to me. When you're kind to my grandchildren, you're kind to me. And when you're rude to my grandchildren, you're rude to me. When you are kind to every single child in the children's ministry, when you put your hand on their head, when you put your lips on their face, when you pick them up in the crook of your arm and carry them away, there's something magical that begins to take place. When Jesus uses the expression, in my name, he is describing the motive of selfless service. Did you realize that you could love someone in the name of Jesus, that you could give them a glass of water in the name of Jesus, a kind word in the name of Jesus? Now, I want you to think this through. This isn't simple human kindness. This isn't simple benevolence. This isn't just simply social service. Jesus is inviting the believer to recognize that ministry to others is a recognition of his identity and his mission and his destiny. We are invited to recognize Christ's commands and his promise and his ministry as the basis of service, unselfish service in his name opens the door and the heart for more Jesus and more God, for fuller insight and closer communion, complete assimilation. What makes true greatness in God's kingdom? I want you to think it through. It's the ability to bring Jesus into the circumstance. Your kindness isn't just simply your kindness, and your service isn't simply your service. Your selflessness isn't simply your selflessness. It's the kindness and the service and the selflessness provides a mechanism whereby you are really, truly bringing Jesus into the circumstance. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't you understand? You may think that the child is looking at you. The child's looking at Jesus. That's what your kindness is. And that's what your selflessness is. That's what it is. Humility and selfless service are acts of love to express the affection of the Lord Jesus and the Father in heaven. The teachings of Jesus expose our carnal hearts and reveal just how committed we are to self-indulgence. And this is why Matthew Henry writes, nothing can make a man truly great 
but being truly good and partaking of God's holiness. And the clue is given to us in the life of Jesus and the clue is given to us in the ministry of Jesus because it's in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus that the paradox becomes even more profound. Look at what it says. Jesus hungers, but he feeds the multitudes. Jesus thirsts, but he is the water of life. Jesus grows weary, yet he bids people come and he offers them rest. He pays tribute and taxes, but he is the king of kings. He prays, but he hears prayers. He weeps and then he dries our tears He is sold for 30 pieces of silver and then he redeems the world by his own blood. Jesus is led to as a sheep to slaughter. But he's the good shepherd. He's put to death. And you're given life. I want you to think it through. What happens in a home where a person seeks last place? What happens when a mom, a dad, brother, sister, children don't push themselves to the front, but they go all the way to the back? What happens in a church where... People are struggling not to be first, but to be last. What happens in a community or a country where the ambition of the leaders is to serve their fellow citizens and refuse prestige? What would happen if everyone in every race everywhere said the most important thing is you? And it isn't just a political ploy in order to get elected. But they really mean it. They mean it with all of their heart and with all of their soul and with all of their mind. What would happen if the supreme goal is the glory of God and the majesty of Christ and the advancement of the gospel and the harmony in God's kingdom? Because Jesus is trying to help them understand something. That the betrayal and the incarceration and the execution and the resurrection are still all about to take place. Greatness, greatness, greatness must be seen in the light of redemption. The humble will be exalted. Those who are full of themselves have no room for God. We lose our life to find it. Selfishness hinders our ability to give of ourselves and our resources to others. We die to self to live for Christ and others. And we discover something that grates against us at the most fundamental level. Slavery leads to freedom. How? Paul writes in Romans 6.18... That those who have been freed from sin become slaves of righteousness. You know, I grew up in a world, being the oldest of five children, that brothers and sisters on long journeys would always say to one another, you know, you ask them, could you get that for me? I'm not your slave. Where do you see the word slave? The S is for Superman. It's not for slave. 
But Jesus invites you to be a slave. How do you understand this? The humble are exalted. The foolish are wise. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.18. There are people who are going to suggest to you that the most foolish thing ever done is to risk everything on the claim that Jesus might be right. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. We give to receive. We see the invisible. We rest with a yoke. We're made great by being small. So how do we serve? Well, someone led you to Jesus. Return the favor. Be hospitable. Be kind. Offer service. Invite people to church. Offer them a Bible. Invite them to a Bible study. Open your home in the name of Jesus. Hone your skills in evangelism in the name of Jesus. Serve others in edification in the name of Jesus. Build someone else up. Serve others in benevolence. If anyone, if anyone has ever been kind to you, then be kind to someone else. Like it says in Ephesians 4.43, be kind to one another. You know, we wouldn't worry so much about what other people thought of us if we knew how seldom they think about us. You wouldn't care because they're not thinking about you. Most people are thinking about themselves. Can you imagine, not if everyone in this church, not if everyone in this church, but can you imagine if just one person in this church literally began to think every single day of someone other than themselves? The beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness is to be less. The perfection of of greatness is to be nothing. And the moment that you're nothing and Jesus is everything, then everything changes. Your life changes. Your family changes. Your church changes. Your nation experiences a revolution. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. Lord, we, we know that each and every one of us have an opportunity to learn. Lord, we know that when you scooped that child into your arms in a living illustration. It wasn't just simply kindness and affection. But it was mercy and direction. What greater joy, what greater thrill than to be scooped up into the arms of Jesus. To be given attention and privilege. And Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray that the massive danger that each and every one faces because of the problem of pride 
It requires enormous doses of humility. So Lord, make us servants, humble and weak. Lord, help us lift up those in need. And Lord, like the song, make us servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.